Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Jamil Mahmood has been fighting for a more equitable world since pretty much day one. Jamil has experience in grassroots activism, a degree in international development studies, and was executive director of Spence Neighborhood Association before recently taking the same role with Main Street Project here in Winnipeg. You know, I'd love to see us transform into not being an emergency shelter and, and you know more supportive transitional housing, but until until everybody has a place to go and and that that's not the that's not the reality right now. And so we have a lot of work to do to get there and figure out um, how to transform emergency services into longer term wraparound supports. I sat down with Jamil Mahmood, executive director of Main Street Project, to talk about equity and equality, the role of philanthropy now and in the future and how with proper organizing and systems in place that no social problem is unsolvable. Jamil Mahmood, thank you for being on the Because and Effect podcast. Welcome to the show. We wanted you for so long and we finally got you, so I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, I've wanted to have you, like I said, because every time I've talked to you at an event or you know, seen you speak at an event or anything, I've always loved the vibe you put out. I've always loved your philosophy on things. Um, so as this new role that you've taken, um, for people who don't know, you know, just took over the executive director of Main Street Project, I think January or was it? Yep. Yeah, January 4th. So, so you've been there for, I guess, by my math, maybe four months now. Give me a rundown of how the last four months have been for you uh, in this new role and how are you handling things? Uh, it's been great. Um, you know, I didn't know what to expect fully. You know, you have some insight, you have some pre-conversations, but uh, starting a role in a, a larger organization like Main Street Project, that's like 24 hours, you know, emergency response. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you never know what to expect, but I think the, the biggest things I, I learned quickly is the team here is super strong. There's a good core of directors that have been here for a while. And, and you know, the programming end of things is amazing. And uh, our staff are just amazing. Um, and uh, so I, I quickly felt comfortable coming in because I knew I didn't have to jump in in any large way that uh, they've been functioning for a while, kind of. Um, there's a little period of break and then there was some support from uh, Bobette from Uncoma Clinic to, to, you know, help with the director role. And so I, I joined a team that, that, that is strong and amazing people and, and just the staff in general is amazing. So um, that, uh, that, was, that was easy. It made it easy to come in and know that I could take time to, to learn, um, learn, read, you know, get caught up, didn't, you know, had that time to get in the role and it's been great. Like, I mean, had to do a budget before, you know, before the end of March. And, and so that's a new process to, with an organization you've only been with a little while. And so, you know, so definitely some things I would do, you know, with more time in the, in the future and already planning what that looks like for next year. But uh, yeah, so coming in, um, really excited for this work um, and uh, and have an amazing team here. So it's easy to, to jump right in and just, just hit the ground running. That's awesome. Yeah. The, uh, what, what have you learned or what is different, I guess, from main street versus Spence neighborhood project where you were the former executive director, maybe a little bit bigger scope, but same s style of work or what, what's the difference so far? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think there's like a general theme of not-for-profit kind of community-based work. And, uh, and so that's, that's the general theme that I think carries through, but, uh, the size is different, you know, um, 
you know, this uh, major project is you know, more than double the size of spent in terms of budget and staffing and, uh, and um, you know, operations. Um, so bigger, bigger operations, there's, uh, you know, different layers of administration and, and other work. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, at Spence for a long time, you're the, as you get sector director, when I started there, we had eight, eight, eight to 10 staff. And when I left, we had 75, but like a lot of the administration was just built on, um, you know, me working extra or other, other managers working extra kind of filling that gap where, um, there's a little more support for that here in the organization uh, structure, framework, and funding, right? To just um, have that that administration that you need to run an organization. So, right. a system like that is the biggest difference, I think. And then, you know, the, there's roles in in healthcare, and I I done in between Spence and, and here, I'd worked for the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority uh, Street Connections program in public health, and so. I kind of been dipping my toes into the the health world, but this is a there's more health focus with our our work with the you know addictions and detox and and that kind of work, and so um, I still feel like I'm still catching up on, on those kind of that world of, of health organizations as a you know community. There's a you know the community health associations and, and different groups, so kind of different networks I'm joining and learning and being a part of, and and so there's kind of that growth in in that yeah. area as well. That's such a gigantic world to figure out, and you know it's such a big picture. That's kind of where I was wanting to go next when it comes to COVID nineteen and sort of how I, I want to talk a little bit about how it affects different populations differently. And I think you have a good insight into that. You know, there there's different degrees, let's call it, of of um, difficulty for people. So maybe just talk about what you're seeing. Uh, when it comes to COVID-19 and how people are handling things and maybe some of the problems that are and, and challenges that have come up that most people may not even be aware of. Yeah, I mean, I think that like that to me, it was like the biggest, well, uh, biggest kind of hit to like learning quickly is like I had to quickly get caught up on all the COVID response uh, in the homelessness sector and um, and Main Street Project, like the work they've done this past year, you know, obviously not with me here before me, but uh, that was just amazing. Like the Main Street Project supporters, uh, people in the sector, just like we went from a shelter of 75 people at Martha Street uh, to building, turning a warehouse at 190 Disraeli through a generous donation from, uh, you know, from a, a, a local businessman to give us that space uh, to, to over 200 shelter beds distance apart, 60, six feet apart, um, you know, uh, separate uh, male and female floors, um, you know, building washrooms and showers in a warehouse, like where it wasn't built for that reason, right? And so like that expansion, then opening isolation, uh, you know, Friday is our, our one year anniversary since we opened our first isolation site for the homeless sector. So opening, you know, one isolation site and then uh, in October when uh, numbers went up, we were able to open a second one uh, and just that whole process of, of that work really just is amazing. And, and I can't say it enough that um, what they did in Winnipeg, you know, Main Street Project staff and, and the support of our partners really saved, saved so many lives. And really, if you look at the outbreak in the homeless uh, population, it's relatively like low to, to almost non-existence besides that blip in, in October, November compared to other cities, right? With homeless populations and you see what happened in 
we were able to take what they learned in Toronto and apply it here immediately and, and use those lessons to make sure we didn't, uh, we didn't end up with the, the, the COVID going right through our whole population and by being able to space out shelters. And then we did, uh, in that time, we renovated Mitchell Fabrics building and got that space up and running um, to the point now we have that's 120 shelter bed space there. Um, you know, 10 washrooms, six showers, like just an amazing facility for, for a shelter. Um, and then now like now we've closed down the 190 as of uh, March 31st, uh, the Israeli building. So now we're all at, uh, you know, Mitchell Fabrics. And so um, just thinking, comparing this, this time last year being, you know, a, a cramped 70 mats on the floor shelter to being 120 uh, cot facility with with cots and mattresses and, and increased bathrooms like that work in a year is just uh, it's unfathomable almost mm -hmm. you when you try to put it all together and and just that work that was done um, by the by the folks here you know and and it was not easy and and I, I you know I've seen the work they put in and and uh, you know it's even hard to understand how they got it all done but I know everybody like when we opened the first isolation site we basically opened it in 24 hours and you know, every staff was assembling furniture and making sure all the rooms were set up. Like, it's just like, it's a quite, quite amazing what happened over this last year. And, uh, and it, it shows in, in our kind of COVID numbers in the population and that. So I think that's the, the challenge of keeping distance is a big challenge. Keeping staff, you know, you know PPE was a challenge at first. We're, we have enough PPE now. Now it's just you know, making sure, you know, staff are vigilant about wearing it all the time. That, you know, People coming through the doors are wearing masks and and they're keeping distance. You know that's uh, that's the big challenges. But uh, people seem to really respond well and and uh, appreciate the work that was done to make sure we can keep everyone safe. What I love about you and your vibe, like I mentioned before, is like you you don't think anything is impossible to solve. You know, like you have this. I don't know if it's optimism. It's kind of a realism because you know you've seen it and you can do it. And you're like, we can figure this out. Let's just figure it out. And I think that's such a refreshing um, attitude compared to the like, ah, oh, you know, it's just too hard or, you know, whatever. Where did that come from? Was that instilled in you at a young age to just be like, let's just solve this problem and go on to the next one? Or, or where does that come from, that mindset? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I've never really thought of it, but uh, I think it's just from my experience. Like, I think um, when I was younger, like when I was 18, 19, I did a lot of like, you know, kind of the anarchist punk kind of community stuff, like Food Not Bombs. It was just like, just dumpster dove or like went to store like the local organic stores and picked up whatever they had left over and made food and served it right like it was just like there's extra food it's going to waste and we can just cook it and serve it to people and that you don't have to like do anything special or you know have permits I mean we do have to have permits but you know <laughs> those kind of things are, are you know like pretty negligible when you think about the the stuff I, so I think there's like there's often barriers put in your way and and stuff and then when I started working at Spence I just realized if you can find funding really to do stuff, there's nothing stopping you from doing it, right? Like, and that's, then you get in the challenge of, you can't always find funding to do the things you want to do, but uh, you can keep working until you do. And I think that's just the, I had the amazing opportunity that I had people like uh, the Winnipeg Foundation, like, you know, United Way that just like never said, like, no, they, you know, they, they maybe said, you have to wait till next, uh, application cycle or you know but no one ever really just said no they just you know they they presented what their challenges were or where their limitations were and then you just had to work around it or find another way or find someone else to support it but 
Um, I never really got no a lot in my early work at Spence and and that's just kind of instilled with me that like there's no reason we can't do it and then the times where we did get hard no's on things I was just like well like we're a community let's just do it as a community and uh, we'll volunteer or we'll figure this out and, and I know that it doesn't always last sustainably that way but at least it it doesn't stop you from doing the things you want to do and making that stuff happen and then it's like it's it never should um you and I always try to you know never block anyone's ideas and um I've always tried to be conscious of that and and I hope that I, I've never done that because I I know no one did it to me and they, they presented reality in terms of like you have to do this or you know you can't just work 24 hours a day to make that happen and um but no one ever outright said no about things and and I think that that helped me kind of just never want to say that to myself or to anyone else it is a punk rock mindset and I love that. And I think part of the, you know, tragedy of the mainstream representation of punk rock is they, they completely ignore the community mindset or the aspect of it where everyone is like, if you've never been in a circle pit and been fallen down, you'll understand what a community mindset is. Cause you get pulled straight up and make sure nobody's getting hurt. And everyone's taking care of you're all family in there. And I think that that kind of comes through when you're, when you're working in the nonprofit sector, it's like, we're all on the same team here. We're all here for the same reason. Let's sort of paddle the boat in the same direction. Um, do totally. you, do you, sorry, go ahead. And social justice is just built into that like hand in hand. Right. So I learned like all my stuff from the anti-racist action folks and, and that work and, and that kind of anarchist political stuff where it's like, it's not about destroying everything. It's about building communities that work on a local level. And I think that's what we do well here in Winnipeg. hundred percent. So do you ever have a, have a struggle coming up against, you know, when you, when you came up in that system or with, the, with those values, and now you're kind of working within systems that need to be adjusted or changed, um, how do you sort of battle that um, dichotomy of wanting to affect change, but being maybe somewhat burdened by systems that were put in place before you got there? Yeah, I mean, like systems generally suck in general. <laughs> uh, but like, I mean, like, yeah, like it's, it's tricky because uh, you do have to work with um, what's out there and what exists and you know, the, you know, the, it's very clear that, you know, there's parts of our government that doesn't work well and there's parts that do. And um, you just kind of learn to navigate. And I think that's what I've done successfully over my career is just figure out ways to navigate. If you're not getting the right support or right answer, go a different route and try a different door. And, 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 you know, there's people within systems always willing to help and, um, and always willing to open a door or give advice. And, and so I think you just, always can't be afraid to ask and can't be afraid to like have those conversations or just, you know, challenge something. And, and, you know, sometimes I've challenged things and got, you know, told that I did the wrong thing and then you learn from that and you grow. And I think that's all you can really do. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's, it's systems are, are designed not never really for, you know, the people they serve, but for the people that work in them. And so I think it's really getting the people that work in them to, 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 to identify where their flaws are and learn how to kind of work around that. And, and I think, you know, that's, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the stuff we do here at mainstream project or in general in the nonprofit sector probably wouldn't exist if the systems were built better and led by community, but we're not at that point yet, but we can keep working to get there. 
So this brings me to the essay you wrote for the upcoming publication that the Winnipeg Foundation is putting out, uh, basically looking to the next hundred years of Winnipeg. And one line that you wrote in there that I want to quote is uh, talking about the role of philanthropy and the role that it has to play sort of within the next hundred years of our city. And the quote is, until we change systems, we need philanthropy to fill those gaps. And this is kind of feels, um, you know, le lends itself to what we're talking about now, but can you expand on that a little bit as far as the next hundred years is concerned when it comes to philanthropy? Like it's weird working in this sector because you, you're almost working to put yourself out of a job in a way. Like we don't want our jobs to exist because that will mean there's no more need for, you know, the things that we're trying to, to solve, but maybe just expand on what you think the role of philanthropy ought to be in society for the next hundred years compared to what it is now and what it has been in the last hundred yeah, like, I mean, I, I think I, you know, and I think I didn't understand for a long time what it was. Like, you know, I think I always thought of philanthropy as a value add, right? Like, uh, uh, it's addition to good core services. And I think, you know, as a Canadian, I think we're, you know, very, we we're, we grew up very proud of our universal health care. And, and, but I think we don't think about where those limits end and, and, and how universal isn't quite universal for everybody, right? And so I think, you know, working in a health organization now and uh, and and working for the WHA and in, in you know a few months ago <laughs> um, you really realize that that the you know that's a system where oh, so many not-for-profits exist just because of the failures in our, our healthcare system specifically like you know mental health addictions like those systems just uh, either were never supported to to do what they're supposed to do or never developed properly um, and they're always considered a little outside of healthcare and I think uh, you know that's where philanthropies really have to step up and support that and and i know we we, we see philanthropy a lot in the healthcare system um and you know and in, in getting infrastructure built and things like that but i think when you you see when you see people that are directly you know harmed by the system it's really hard to to not you know not not what not want philanthropy to fill that gap and, and have it do that but it really shouldn't right like i think you know philanthropy should be the value add to our core services right like make make what we have better through philanthropy but not not solve the problems and fill the holes right and so I think that's what i was trying to get at in in that uh in that essay is just to try to imagine a city where we had you know an investment where we needed and the investments were there and then uh philanthropy was able to play this role of, of adding to it making it better you know bringing equality and, and equity to uh to the systems versus um, filling the holes that the systems are leaving behind. And I, I like, you know, I, I believe that that should be the case. And uh, I hope it doesn't take a hundred years to get, uh, yeah. yeah. No kidding. So what kind, like, what are some, some things that the average Joe can do to, um, improve the situation and change the system slowly to make things a little bit more equitable? Like just, you know, a average Joe, sitting at home that's like yeah it would be nice to help things out like what do you what what would what would your advice be for the, for those people yeah I, I think look at your community like look at your needs in the community um i think you know uh, i just think back to this this winter when it got super cold there and uh everyone wanted to help people who are like hanging on bus shacks and, and you know put, popping up residents there and and i had people from every neighborhood reach out to us and, and you know some some people i know like friends of mine and i was like well, if you have someone in your bus shack, like the solution shouldn't be to ask us to come out there and and, and visit them. Like you have a, a local community center or something, right? Like every community has a, a local space, like talk 
something else, like get that open, like get volunteers in there. Like it's clearly that that person's in your community, they're part of your community. And I think uh, people forget that, you know, they like to, it's easy to think that the homeless population is on this end of Main Street and in this pocket and that's it, but that's not the case in Winnipeg. Uh, it's everywhere and we see it, you know, we see it in where the encampments pop up, where people are, are popping in bus shacks, you know, like where our van is getting called out to respond to. It's all over the city, every area, right? It's not, uh, and I think local people could do a lot to just, you know, organize neighbors, support people. I mean, like support people before they're in a situation where they're homeless. Like, um, I mean, I, I don't know that, I don't know the number on it, but the amount of people that are one paycheck away from being homeless or, or one, you know, medical emergency or one, you know, accident away from, being out of a house or, you know, losing your job and being out of that, like, it's huge. And it, you can, we can stop this before it happens just by like talking to our neighbors and, you know, figuring out organizing local food drives to fill pantries and, and little things like that can go a long way. And, uh, and then we're hopefully not needed on, on our end of things, you know, in terms of needing the shelter or needing that space, because we, we should be just an emergency service. We shouldn't be mm. the place people go for months or years to, to sleep at night. Right. And, right. and so like, I think that's where people can do a lot in their, in their community. And then um, obviously like, uh, you know, donating to the places that they care about and, you know, every dollar, you know, as you know, at the foundation goes a long way and, and can have a huge impact. Um, and I know it's weird with COVID, the volunteer opportunities in terms we've had to scale ours back and uh, we even tried to stop it, but our volunteers would stop coming. They just kept showing up every week for like food bank and stuff. And so we decided we had to like quickly figure out how to do it safely and space them apart and get them the PPE. But, uh, but yeah, there's lots of opportunities to volunteer, uh, get involved, get engaged. But I always encourage people to do stuff on your local community level, find the people in your neighborhood who need the support and because it's hard to ask for help and it's easy to offer it right and so I think if you can get your neighbors together and identify who might need their fridge filled one week or one month right that goes a huge way in terms of preventing you know issues down the road and and people being homeless in the future right very well said for sure yeah that that old adage it takes a village to raise a child it, it I mean it should be it takes a village to just raise an, a city right like we're all in this together and I think it, that's a that's that it's weird that that needs to be reminded to some people who think that they live in a bubble within themselves and, and, you know, others struggling doesn't affect them at all. Cause it absolutely does. Right. And yeah, it's, it's just sort of, yeah, and that's, that's a peaceful addiction too. Like, I mean, so many people have weird, um, they're totally fine with like alcohol and then like drugs, they don't, they're just against an anti and like addictions, addictions, right. It's a health issue. It's, it needs mm -hmm that way and i think people can do a lot to like educate themselves and reduce stigma and, and that'll go a long way in terms of like you know the things that's holding us back from having you know safe consumption sites in our city and you manage alcohol programs like is all just about philosophy and uh and you know beliefs and and what people believe and we just like you if we, we wouldn't do this to any other uh disease right we wouldn't treat any other disease this way but uh, we do it with addiction and, uh, and it's weird and we need to stop. <laughs> well, yeah, let's, let's dig into that and maybe pivot a little bit towards, you know, your experience in the, in, with the WHA and stuff. I'm, I'm struggling right now with the, um, focus and intent behind keeping everyone physically healthy and virus free, but we're not at all as vigilant 
in keeping people mentally healthy and, you know, <laughs> all the anxiety and depression and addiction that's going to come from this pandemic and, and all the sort of things that are put in place to protect people are actually going to harm them in a different way. Am I off base in thinking that we're not at all focusing on uh, the mental pandemic, the mental health pandemic, and we're only focusing on this physical pandemic or what do you, what are your thoughts on that a little bit? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I, I think there's been some initiatives and some effort to, you know, get people connected online and, and there's lots of great kind of things happening on small scales that I, I see pop up every once in a while. And yeah, I think, I think it's tricky because, um, we built, uh, you know, public health system to only respond to those, you know, those physical things around virus, you know, infection prevention and control, right? And um, and so the system's not designed to to take in those those bigger factors. And I mean, I I know people, you know, you hear about people who've been warning us for years that this was going to happen, but I think in general we didn't have a a, a good sense that that this would, wouldn't be anything bigger than a bad case of the flu or, you know, that kind of mentality. And so I think, I hope it means that we, we start investing better in public health and that this work around, you know, addiction, mental health stuff in terms of as a public health response is invested in and supported in the same way we do, you know, the, the, the physical prevention control stuff where we're doing for COVID in terms of our public health orders. And so, yeah, I think you're probably right on in terms of there's not enough happening and and that, but it's also, um, you know, I think we're we're ta we've seen our system taxed to the max, right, in terms of its capacity and and where we're at, and so I like I hope that um, we grow from this and we build a healthier system to be able to respond in, in all ways in the future, and um, this should be you know this should be in our memory for a long time as we as we keep, you know, deciding on how we invest in healthcare and, and that, and, and hopefully that changes overall. Yeah. That's one, one sort of silver lining of this whole <laughs> pandemic epidemic situation that I'm hoping people realize like, okay, the way certain things were run back, you know, <laughs> before, before COVID like BC, uh, we can't go back to it. And people are like, when are we going to go back to normal? And when are we going to get things back to how they used to be? And I, and I really don't think there's going to be a, uh, we're not going to go back to that. And I, I hope that translates over to policy and funding and investment and understanding where we need to put our resources, because this is shining a light on a lot of inequities and a lot of issues that, uh, uh, were kind of hidden before still there, but not really, um, in the public consciousness as much perhaps. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I think like I hope we we do that as you know as consumers as well. You think about all the, I know I'm sure we've all had a moment in this pandemic where we we're like, what what did I really did I really need all that stuff I had or mm -hmm. money on you know going out and doing what are the things that I really want to do again and and you know need to make sure that they're there when I I want to go in the future, right? Like, and so I think just like that whole reevaluation of uh, it's easy to get caught up in trends and, and stuff. And, but I think that this is a lot of the chance to slow down and say, what's really important. What are those things I want to like, where do like, and I, I thought about this a lot, like, where do I want to spend my money during the pandemic and, you know, tried to support every restaurant I could that, that, you know, was my local restaurants and, you know, order and pick up versus delivery service. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's cold and you don't want to do that. You know, those kind of things that you, you can do to really, you know, and it, it's like getting back to that, you know, that, that kind of punk idea of just like you support local things that you care about and, and uh, they, they're your community and, and 
these things should be built into our community in, in every aspect. Very well said. Yeah. What, one aspect, or I was, I don't know where I was reading it, but I didn't know you were chair of the Rainbow Trout Music Festival. Is that still the case? Yeah, I still am. We oh, cool. were meeting last night. So we're not, uh, we're not having a festival again this year. Unfortunately. Uh, like we, we obviously couldn't do the gathering in August um, as planned. And we were planning, you know, we were trying to imagine uh, what, what the festival looks like if we did something you know, podcasts and online and, and all the stuff. And then we were just, we had, we had a bunch of plans written up and we just said, you know, the thing that makes Rainbow Trout such an amazing music festival is about being on the, that land, uh, the music together, that camping and, and that, and, and we'll never be able to recreate that, uh, you know, in, in an event of the city, because that's not what we do. And, and it's, it's never what we did for the last, you know, 10 to 13 years, however long it's been. So, we said if we couldn't do it in, in the way that brought the magic that we love so much with the festival, then uh, let's just wait another year and uh, hopefully by, by next year it's all good to go and we can plan better and use this time to make it even better for future years. So For sure. Yeah, the, my first time going was the last time they had two years ago or whatever. And I, I we've all I, a big group of us volunteered and it was like one of the best weekends of my life. So like, yeah, things like that and the having them taken away even just like going for beers with my hockey team or my volleyball team, like it's really made me reevaluate the value of community and or redefine what community is. You know, you growing up, you, you kind of think community is the community center and you know, the, what all that stuff, but community is like who you spend time with and what you do. And, and when, when those things are taken away, it's really made me realize, okay, community needs to be prioritized more than I had. And maybe like more, more gratitude for the communities that I was a part of, as opposed to just thinking, ah, it's just a hockey team or just a volleyball team or just a music festival or whatever the case may be. Uh, how are you maintaining your communities when you're, uh, not allowed to, you know, gather with people outside your household. Have you found any tricks or things that have worked for you over the pandemic? Yeah, I don't know if I, I've done a good job of this, actually. <laughs> uh, I've always, like, I've always had this, I'm like, uh, things that are in front of me, I can, you know, really pay attention to. But if, like, like when I used to, I used to travel a lot when I was younger, and uh, I would never, like, ever want to, like, call home or, like, you know, I was gone for a year at one point working overseas and stuff, and, I just like, I maybe called like my best friends once and I was just like, it just like, I'm better at just, it's there. I'll get back to Winnipeg. It'll be there. And, uh, but uh, while I'm here, I just want to like live this way. And so like that kind of like, I think, you know, affect me. And then, and, you know, I, I think of like some of my best friends I maybe had like two Zoom calls or three Zoom calls with, and it's, it's not the same, but uh, it's just like, we're not going to be able to see each other. So like, <laughs> just us. <laughs> And we're not apart or, or whatever. And so I'm not good at that. So I, I come up, I started a new job, which is super busy. So that's how I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but like, I mean, like, yeah, keep, keep things going. Uh, but like, yeah, I haven't talked to any of my friends I played soccer with, you know, this whole, whole time, things like that, besides like occasional emails. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I'm not the person to, <laughs> to respond to this. Well, like I have, I have like my partner, Jody, and we just got a puppy and I don't know. That's kind of like my house is my community. And then the folks I work with, you know, at the WRJ, I had great coworkers, uh, all the team of public health nurses and, you know, the outreach workers that I worked with, you know, you see them every day, right? And then here, uh, really connected to the folks on, on the team here at MSP. So yeah. that's kind of the communities I, I tend to gravitate closely with because I work with people every day. And, 
for sure. Well, it's just strange times. It's just such a bizarre, unprecedented experience for sure. Um, go, yeah, going back to Main Street Project and sort of the five-year plan, or t- I don't know how what you how you guys are focusing on things, but what you know, it's a pretty big ship, and you're kind of you're now at the helm, and you got kind of get to steer it in a certain direction. What are some things that you really want to focus on, um, either strengthening or moving the needle on when it comes to public perception or, or understanding or anything? Where, where do you want to drive this ship for the next? you know, five, 10 years? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I have the things I want to do. Like my things are really about making mainstream project, um, you know, the best possible, uh, you know, provider we can be of our services, uh, building strong staff supports and, you know, health and safety stuff. And then those kind of pieces around operations, like really, like we run, like, yeah, it's amazing what we run on, on how we run it, like on a, you know, it's hard to talk about a you know multi-million dollar budget being a shoestring, but it, it is, right? When you think about what we do and how much we do. Um, so I think like for me, we're about to embark on a five-year planning process and, and I'm super excited about that. And that was like what I, I cherish the most about uh, being at Spence uh, is that it was led by a community who developed plans from the community and that set the path forward. And, and I hope that this process of, of developing our five-year plan here um, really builds a sense of community from the people using our services to our staff being engaged and stakeholders in this process and then partner agencies. Um, none of this work happens in a silo and, and wanting to really build strong partnerships and make sure that we cover broad spectrum of, of work overall. And we know Mainstream Project can't do it all. And, and, and you know, at times maybe they tried to do it all. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and I'm not knocking that cause I get it. And, uh, but figuring out, you know, what is the core function for Main Street Project doing that really well, and then making sure we work to advocate and make change, uh, to, so that we're not needed long-term. Right. And, and, you know, I'd love to see us transform into not being an emergency shelter and, and, you know, more supportive transitional housing, but until until everybody has a place to go, and and that that's not the that's not the reality right now, and so we have a lot of work to do to get there and figure out um, how to transform emergency services into longer term wraparound supports, and you know that's a, that's a building housing stock and transitional housing and supported living and all those things, you know, proper addiction treatment programs that are available to everyone, you know, uh, you know all that stuff that that. All these things we have wait lists for we need to eliminate all that and, and get people versus when they need it and where they need it so if i can have a role in in improving that and and you know better system coordination and i'm really excited about and homelessness's uh coordinated access plan they're rolling out um you know it's long overdue in our city so i'm excited to to know that they're moving forward with that and we're going to be a part of that here and and i think every you know hopefully everyone's a part of that because that's what coordinated access means and so um, there's things happening that I'm excited to be a part of and, and I'm excited to kind of figure it out. I, I obviously, I, I told myself I wouldn't set any super clear direction until we had a plan in place and then that'll I'll give that guidance. So right now I'm just focusing internally on, on our staff and our programs and uh, what supports we need to build in and, and how to offer the best possible programming possible. I love what you said about 
asking what the asking the community what they need and then responding to it because i think that's a subtle change in the last i don't know how a couple decades worth of philanthropy where it used to be someone coming in and saying here's some solutions to your problems here's some money to solve them go do it how i want you to do it and we're learning and we're trying to understand or trying to make it known that you can't do what's that saying nothing about us without us like you have to have everyone at the table who's going to be you know affected and have the conversation start like that so i think that's a have you always had that mindset? Did you learn it throughout your career or, or, or do you just, was that something inherently built in you? Yeah. I mean, I think I learned a lot of that at, at Spence Neighborhood Association. Mm -hmm. I always felt that way. Like, and I mean, I did my, my degree at university is international development studies. And so um, I think like a lot of the challenges I had with studying that was like a lot of development isn't done that way, but I learned about all the great projects that were, and, you know, you look at places like Kerala and India and, these you know there's tons of shining examples of when development is led by local communities how much more successful it is how it's still there 15 20 years after the projects have happened right and so i think that's what i learned you know started learning in school and then saw in in, in reality at Spence neighborhood association about a community improving itself and, and you know uh, asking for the things it needs to to do that and i think i think we want to see that here and i think you know we're we're huge advocates here of of peer-led things and, and getting the peer involved in, you know, the Mental Power Reduction Network is leaders at kind of that peer-led uh, model stuff. We're doing some of that with like, we have a peer program here for our daytime outreach and uh, we'd love to see that. Like, I mean, I think I think we would say we are some, we're very successful if, you know, the, all of our staff are our former clients of Main Street Project at some point uh, or, or something along that line of a peer engagement. We create more positions here that are peer led and people with lived experience and bringing that in. And so that's, you know, things I hope we, we move towards and, and can do because I think people who have lived the life know better than anyone else uh, what, what's needed in those times and uh, can provide that better than anyone else. Very well said. Could not have said it better myself. Uh, I know you're a busy man and we're at the end, like past the end of the day for you. So uh, before we go, we we have a little segment called Just Because, where I ask you about the causes you care about and sort of the effect that it's had on your lives. Are you okay to go through the same seven questions with me? Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, question one is, what is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? Ooh, like ever? Uh, or, or just like the first one that really moved you perhaps or, or yeah the first one you I would say about. I'd say food not bombs I think mm. uh, you know it, it got me really into the into the community and into the helping out and, and you know feeding folks and, and food related stuff and I mean we were doing food not bombs before food security was called food security back when called, you know hunger or whatever we used to call food security before that and uh, so I think that was yeah that's probably the first one caused me yeah, that's a cool organization because I, uh, I read it, that in your bio or wherever you were. I think you wrote it in the essay and I was like, hey, what's I, I remember hearing about that org, but I never knew about it. And it looked pretty awesome. So, yeah, very cool. Uh, question two, if, if money and politics and logistics and budgets were no issue for you, you could just snap your fingers and something would happen in your current, you know, cause area. What would you do? Uh, I would. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would build housing. I'd build housing. I'd, I'd build supportive housing. I'd build uh, different models, you know, congregate living, uh, shared housing, you know, a new model of a rooming house, like just build build housing and, and places for people to be safe and uh, safe, supportive housing. That's what I'd do. 
yeah, those, those basics that everyone sort of takes for granted, food, shelter, clothing, you know, love, once those things are, are, are handled, people's experiences are just so much better. So yeah, very, very and you can do it all in one house. So. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, question three, what's the biggest stigma or misunderstanding about the cause? Uh, I think, uh, you know, the stigma around drug use, uh, and, uh, and addiction is, is so, so high. And, uh, I mean, I think we saw it very clearly with all the, you know, Bruce Oak stuff in, in St. James and, um, uh, you know, that attitude towards what it means to provide addiction support and how we stigmatize that, you know, that, the, that community and, and the homeless sector in general is uh, the stigma we put on people is sucks and uh, and hurts. Something I've come to the conclusion of lately um, is that the stigma it, it it makes it worse for the person experiencing addiction. Like they are, it, it, like it makes them harder to 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 approach the problem. You know, I used to think of stigma as kind of like, oh, they're just stigmatizing it and it and it, I don't I don't know really what I'm saying, but basically I'm saying like for the person to want to get better and be better, if they feel stigmatized, they're not going to do it. And that and I I didn't really n understand that nuance until recently. Yeah, and I think, you know, working in the Street Connections van every night uh through the, the last year and a half, almost 2 years, I you know, the most amazing people I connected with, the people that care so much about their community and other other people who use drugs and uh, uh, more compassion and care there than I've seen in, in a lot of communities. So um, yeah, that is, is wrong and, and we gotta get rid of it. Yeah. Question four, um, what's the time in your life where you had to pivot because plan A wasn't working out so you had to go to plan B? Yeah. I. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess starting at Spence was my big, uh, big pivot because my plan was I came back from a year of working overseas and uh, was going to finish my degree and, and, and head back to work development job. And then I just saw, you know, Winnipeg's core and, uh, and the challenges we faced and, you know, the challenges of, of the effects of colonization and residential schools on, on our communities and, uh, and just had to, I couldn't just go work somewhere else. I, I had to work here and, and do that. So that's, I think, the biggest pivot uh, my, my planned path. Right. Well, thank you for making that choice because, yeah, you're, I, I, I've been saying to people whenever your name comes up in conversation at the foundation or just friend wise or whatever, I'm like, this guy should be the mayor. Like, I want you to be in charge of stuff because you have the best perspectives and you got my vote if you ever choose to run. So I, I find that offer every day. <laughs> Yeah, probably wise. That's why you'd be good at it. Uh, question five, what's the best advice that you've ever been given? Oh man. Uh, I don't like, I can't like, it's not like a, a piece of like, it's not like someone said something that stuck in my head. Uh, but I know when, uh, you know, when I was, I was at Spence and we were very early days, um, I just wanted to like, I wanted to do like manage our youth programs differently and, and get into, uh, you know, restorative justice and learning about that. And, and I think that, uh, you know, I, the guy, there's a, a guy named Richard Kennett who worked for Manitoba Justice and uh, he was just so super supportive and, and just like, you know, him, he never said no to anything. And, um, I, you know, I think about, about that and just kind of like, 
the stuff he taught me around restorative justice and I, he got me into like victim offender mediation training and uh, learning that stuff. And I never actually practiced that stuff after doing the training, but it just helped me shape how we developed programming at, at Spence and how we ran youth programming from restorative justice lens. And I think, so I think that like, just like, I don't know if it's advice, but it was just like good learning uh, that kind of helped me shape my, my view on, on approaches to how, you know, how you manage, you know, discipline or, or behavior management in uh, in in settings like drop-in after-school program type things, you can do it in a different way, and and you know it's uh, it doesn't have to be a punitive thing, and kind of getting rid of that kind of punitive elements of justice and learning that I think mm. that advice, and maybe that's what it was. I just know that stuck with me in terms of learning that really helped me shape and and change how I approached kind of different things. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, question six, sticking with advice. What's what advice would you give your 10 year old self if you could go back in time and, and give him one little nugget of advice? Oh, I just think uh, I, you know, have the most fun you can doing everything you do. And I, I try to do that. I like I, I enjoy my work very much and I always have and any opportunity to build fun things into your job. And, and I think like I think uh, I think I've done a pretty good job of, of you know living life to, to, to as much as false. But I think what times where I, I didn't do things or I, I held back or do things or you know I was tired or whatever. And I, I kind of wish like just never never not do things and always go uh, to do the most fun things. And they're, they're not always the same for people, right? Like everyone's fun is different, but just like have fun all the time. And and things are hard. And I know that's kind of like uh, that's like a you know gumdrops and baby puppies kind of answer but just like have fun and and even even doing fun stuff like, like you know you can do good good passionate heart work uh stuff that is fun and, and make it fun and have fun you know when you're doing hard things make them fun and and it's okay to have fun and laugh when things are really bad and and make fun of that and i think that's lessons i've learned from people who have been in in much worse situations than i am and they still find ways to have fun and be happy and joke around and um, and I think if everyone does that, we'll, you know, we'll get, it brings connection to, to other people and also helps you, you know, get through life in, in a better way. And, and that's not to diminish, you know, mental health challenges and depression and, and those things that are very serious uh, things. But if you can make fun, carve out fun in whatever you do, I think you'll, you'll, you'll be doing well. You have to, to survive when, you know, when you're working in this world, when you see the things that we see and talk to the people that are, that might be struggling, you have to find a way to encourage fun and have fun yourself. Otherwise it's going to, it'll beat you down for sure. Uh, question seven, the very final question. Thank you again for doing this, man. You, you've been, you've been an awesome guest. Um, question seven is what do you want to be remembered for? Uh, I like, yeah, I, I want to be like, if I can make real change in our city, then that would be great. But I think um, less, I don't know what, what people think of me, but I want to like, I, I, I prefer that the memory of me is stands in, in people that have been able to have an impact on my life and, and support. And so it's not necessarily like, you know, a memory of my, my career or my work, but just that, uh, that I've been able to have an impact on people's lives in a positive way. And I think that would make me feel good to know that in the end I, I was able to you know help one person or help a thousand people whatever it is or a million you know whatever <laughs> being um that that I, that people felt that I was useful and helpful and 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 gave opportunities where there wasn't any beautiful 
Jamil, thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, good luck in, the, in your role moving forward. Um, enjoy the new puppy. Be safe, be happy, have fun. And uh, thank you for talking to us. Thanks. So great chatting. Thank you again to Jamil Mahmood for being on the podcast. I, Jamil, I've wanted to have you on for so long. So thank you again for being a guest. Uh, it was a delight to, to, to just hear your thoughts and, and learn a little bit and get a little bit of wisdom. I think you're a wonderful addition to Winnipeg and an important part of, of this community and doing such great work. Um, so thank you again for, for sharing and for being here. And uh, we really appreciate it. If you want to learn a bit more about Main Street Project, go to MainStreetProject.ca. They have incredible programming there as Jamil was talking about and just really doing fantastic work in our city. So thanks again. All music on our show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music at trentonburton.com. Because in Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. You can learn more about the foundation by visiting their website at wpgfdn.org or by searching at wpgfdn on all social media accounts. I'm at Nolan Bicknell on all the socials. We'll see you next week for a brand new episode of The Cause and Effect. And remember, justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Bye-bye.